0: Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Emily explains why a symphony is a symphony, and Jill talks about the characteristics of a grape varietal called Verdejo. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their Music
1: Welcome to episode, I don't know which, of Scores and Pores, but really episode one. Yeah. We recorded episode one back in February of 2019. Man, when we listened
2: to it, <laughs> did we love it. Oh man, was it long. So long. Well, it <laughs> took me like a week to edit, for one thing. It took me days and days and days to edit that it was it was really really great and we
1: thought about releasing it and then we we thought better of it only because uh, you know a lot of you would have thought it was super interesting we mm-hmm. it was great but yeah. it was there were quite a few rat holes and black holes uh, um, that we went down that, you know, we might re-release
2: at some point because it's pretty awesome, but... We'll definitely release it someday, We, but ju- we
1: just thought... Good let's, Lord. Let's keep this succinct. I brought uh, wine from the same producer that we assessed that day. Obviously, Emily knows uh, the piece she's going to talk about. Um, More or less, yeah. <laughs> with as much familiarity. <laughs> but we... This episode, we're going to talk about uh, what makes a symphony a symphony because I know... Uh, a friend of mine who is, you know, listens to quite a bit of classical music, I asked her, so, hey, do you know what a, if I were to ask you what a symphony is, what, what is it? Like What, what are the rules around ar- it? Yeah. And she said, why, I don't know. <laughs> and then I was going to talk about what makes a certain grape varietal a grape varietal, and I was going to say Cabernet. Yeah. Or Pinot Noir. I was actually going to try to do both. G- ridiculous. Ridiculous, right? Cabernet yeah. and Pinot Noir both have 9,000 shades at this point. They're light, they're heavy, they're oaked, they're not oaked. So that would be like what makes one one is would be too hard. So yeah. I settled on the grape Verdejo because Verdejo, most sommeliers, and, and if people are into that grape uh, or the region that it's made from called Rueda in central western Spain, you're, if you're familiar with either one of those, it's sort of synony- synonymous with a, a profile that we'll talk about, but um, that's actually not quite a true profile. So it's 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 quite easy to get over to what really does make a Verdejo a Verdejo, because there are really only three producers that are making unmasked Verdejo, and we'll talk wow. about why in a moment. Amazing. What makes a symphony a symphony?
2: Yeah, and I picked, I don't even remember how many pieces. Three, I think, the first, for the first, <laughs> like, you don't need three pieces. You need one. One <laughs> is good from the classical era.
1: Which is, which is when?
2: Why, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the classical <laughs> era starts in 1750, which is when Bach dies, uh, and it goes until the early 1800s, maybe 180. Eighteen O Beethoven is when it starts to change. Yes,
1: 18 <laughs> Beethoven. Early,
2: early 1800s, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, a very short period of time, the classical period was. The Baroque period lasted a lot longer, about 1600-ish to 1750, so a century and a half. Uh, even the Romantic period lasted a, a, a bit longer than the classical period. But the classical period, I think, was pretty rigid, and there were a lot of rules and expectations and, uh, you know... People started breaking those right away, but when we talk about what makes a symphony a symphony, I'm going to be talking about that particular era, when the symphony was the king of all types of music. I love it. The classical era.
1: I love it, and who who did you uh, choose to focus on? Who's the composer?
2: I chose Joseph Haydn, who is known as the father of the symphony, even though he's not the first one to compose something called a symphony, he perfected the form, and... Haydn also lived a very long life and a very successful and productive life. So he wrote more than 100 symphonies, about 107. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that gave him an opportunity to really make it what it became. And then from there, people like Beethoven, who came after Haydn, who act- he actually studied with Haydn, so they were alive at the same time, but Haydn was much older. Uh, and uh, they, you know, they emulated Haydn then and, and even up into the 20th century and, and into the 21st century, everyone's emulating that when they think about a symphony in, in a lot of ways. I, I shouldn't overgeneralize because there are exceptions to that, of course, but, uh, but yeah, Haydn, Haydn was the model and we're going to listen to his 31st portions of it, <clears throat> his 31st symphony, which has a nickname and the nickname is the horn signal. The horn signal. Mm-hmm. So let's just go ahead and listen to some right after Let's do it. Let's do it. When we recorded this the first time, it was like an hour before we got to music. So, <laughs> so we're just going to listen to some Haydn right now. And what what um, can
1: we emphasize? What we should be listening for? Like, what are these elements of
2: a symphony that makes a symphony different than a sonata or a concerto or a perfect. Perfect, which is what you asked me in the beginning, what makes a symphony a symphony? And I'm like, well, Haydn, see, this was the problem with the first episode. (laughs) Okay, Uh, a symphony, traditionally speaking, is a four-movement work, so that means there's four sections, and it's for an orchestra, just an orchestra of string players. Sometimes there could be winds and brass and percussion as well. And uh, then they just play this little ditty with four sections, and they move on. Now, some of them have three sections. Some of them just have one big long section. But in theory... But in the classical era, traditionally speaking, we're talking about a four-movement work, four sections, uh, for an orchestra on on a stage, you know, with string players. And are there rules that, you know, one needs to be a different tempo than the other, that they need to be... First movement is going to be fast. Okay, 90% 90% of the time in the classical era sometimes there might be a little introduction on the front that starts slow but not this one this one just kicks right off into the, into the glory that is the first movement and again it's a faster tempo so here you go
1: segue to Verdejo, you know, most people don't honestly take most wines from that area too seriously because they're just kind of thought to be this like passion-fruity, grape-fruity juice, basically. Okay. Um, and when we think of Verdejo in its true form, it's very different. Um, just a little a little history of Verdejo. They think that the grape hailed uh, from around northern Africa, and it made its way up north, most likely via the Moors, like around between the 11th century and the 13th century. It, it's not well documented, but that's the thought anyway. And then through the Motharabes, uh, the Christians living under Moorish rule, they were allowed to, even though, you know, in theory, that during that time period, wine was not allowed under Moorish rule, they did allow... Christians to practice in certain areas, to practice their religion, and part of that was grape growing for sacramental purposes. What did they do? They just taxed it. So mm-hmm. that was smart on On both, both ends, could live in peace. Well, I mean... Sort of. Sort of, <laughs> depending on where you were and what time period. But anyway, so Verdejo has, we know, has been in the Iberian Peninsula since at least the 13th or 14th century. Um, and then fast forward till now the history of the of the way we know verdejo i'll try to keep this as concise as possible all right not the 3 hour version apparently that we first recorded uh, yeah, in right. february back 10 15 years ago or so the most popular white wine in spain if you were within the country was most likely it was there's kind of a debate albariño which hails from the northwest or ribeiro like a young white wine easy drinking a lot of times it's a blend and most Spaniards you know will talk about ribeiro with a lot of esteem very high highly esteemed centuries ago and it kind of carried through now but now it's in, a lot of it's industrially crafted even okay. though there's some good stuff and th- those that made verdejo and that have that were making this white wine in this region called rueda which is close, it's around the area of Valladolid, close to Segovia, Um, they decided, we want to have the next, we want to be the the white wine of Spain, and we want to be in all the taverns. So how do you do that? Let's see. Who was very popular in the beginning of the 2000s? The success story of white wine dumb, would be New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. Anybody who's anybody who was in wine during that time would say they could not believe how cheaply how inexpensive or excuse me and how cheaply and how expensive New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs could sell for because they were like this new profile this like grapefruity passion fruity jazzy really light fun wine and it was like the whole world went through this New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc phase well And Rueda said, wow, let's dump Sauvignon Blanc. I'm sure this isn't exactly what they said, but let's dump Sauvignon Blanc yeast in our verdejo and make it taste like kiwi Sauvignon Blanc. So now you have, right now, it is all the rage. If you are in Jerez in southern Spain, yes, you can get cherry, but your options will be Rioja for red wine, Rueda for white wine. When you go down the streets of the capital of Rioja, like most people think, that's like the mecca of Spanish wine. You have a choice of red Rioja or white Rueda. So they have; they've they've triumphed. They set it out just like Madonna mm. said, "I want there to be no corners of earth that people don't know me," and yeah. she succeeded. <laughs> and in Rueda, they succeeded. So. I think it's easy to talk about what Verdejo is because there are so few people doing very true Verdejo that it, it ends up becoming very transparent when you taste these, you know, three three producers, but especially the one that I've brought today because this winemaker is basically making wines almost the same way for all of her wines. So she's not doing like petnats and orange wines and clay and mm-hmm. oak and all this stuff. She's like pretty steadfast in her, I'm making wines mostly in clay, not adding any sulfur, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So before we taste, do we want to jump back to movement too? Nope. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, I've chosen a producer who is doing all spontaneous yeast fermentation. So meaning not adding any yeasts like the Sauvignon Blanc yeast Mm -hmm. I was talking about. The yeasts uh, reside on the skins and in the vineyard, and that's a very key signature to, you know, how you recognize your friend by their face. You get a vineyard composite by those yeasts that have collected there over centuries, right, decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so just don't sulfur—like, if you're going to sulfur and pesticides and all that, you're going to erase that ability to portray a vineyard in a glass— so this producer doesn't add any yeasts. It's all um, biodynamically farmed and organically farmed. Um, any preps that are made, she makes them herself. Out of any what? Like preparations, like if you're oh. going to use uh, a spray to combat against mildew or a spray to oh. combat against a frost or something, and kind of try to warm your 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 bunches and your leaves, she's doing that with like valerian and horsetail and all these. Mm. Is super cool. So. Okay. Um, but this is all done in Spanish clay, um, with no sulfur added to it. And this is a site called Vajuste. To scores and pours. Scores and pores. So what makes Verdejo Verdejo? Verdejo usually has dreams quite... and fairies. Yes. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> dreams and fairies.
1: Yes, it's quite. Mm. It's um, so. This now we're tasting a three-year-old Verdejo. Uh, that I had, I have two bottles left in my cellar, and thought it was a really special day to open it. Verdejo has ki- kind of some some thick skins to protect itself against. You know, it's very hot in this area, um, so it's to protect the the grapes from actually sunburning too quickly. Verdejo usually tastes like a version of I don't know if you could if you could combine like Chenin Blanc and Sake, and like you know, Chenin Blanc's kind of round, but it's got this. You know, exuberant acidity. So it's sort of is like oxymoronic. You know, the color changes really quickly. When we say oxidize, white wines as they age get they gain in color, like they okay. gold. They get kind of golden. Okay. As they age, and that can happen slower or quicker depending on the type of grape. Okay. And one way to know Chenin Blanc or Verdejo when it's made well and in a more kind of intrinsic, honest way, when you're blind tasting it is the color will look like it's maybe four years older than it really is. Okay. Um, a verdejo? Then, a verdejo, yep. Okay. So the, the color oxidizes quickly and the nose can get kind of unctuous, but then the palate should be, you know, as normally a quite elevated amount of acidity for what maybe you'd look at it and think, oh, this wine is older or it might not be as refreshing. Um, and then you get it on the palate
2: and you just notice how, like, how zingy it is. Mm-hmm. Very zingy. The acid hits later for me, but the, it zings my tongue.
1: And have you, do you notice, like, we've tasted a few wines done in clay here, fermented and aged in clay. The Georgian ones, you can definitely tell. Yeah. Could you, can you tell that this is done in clay? Mm. I can smell it now that you say it. But is it super noticeable like it is in the Georgian stuff?
2: No, uh-uh. I
1: think if I didn't
2: tell people... No, if you didn't tell me, I wouldn't have been able to pick that up with the second you said it. And I remember you saying it a few minutes ago, but I didn't think of it when I was, you know... This is... I can smell it, yeah.
1: What I love is it's so incredibly fresh on the palate, and I, th- I personally think if it were done in stainless steel, it wouldn't be that way. If it were done in oak, it wouldn't be that way. It's the fact that it, you know, if it were in concrete... Or this dolia, the Spanish clay, allows for the grape to just subtly respire, you know, to, to take in some oxygen, to breathe a little bit so it doesn't get reductive. We've talked about that a couple times, like these off aromas of like stinky eggs and, and stuff like that that you need to get some air in there to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It just doesn't have any of that. It's just like marvelous. Yeah, it's amazing.
2: Bring me to the second movement, ER. Oof, all right. Second movement, usually the slow one. Okay. In the classical era, I bet... Dreams and fairies. Dreams and fairies. I bet... um, This is a total crapshoot, but I bet... I mean, easily more than half the time, the second movement is the slow movement. There are certainly exceptions where uh, instead of the normal pattern, how we were saying a moment ago that a symphony has four parts, instead of a fast movement, then a slow movement, then two fast ones, uh, there would be two fast ones, a slow one and a fast one. Beethoven did that a time or two. Uh, it it happened, but uh, traditionally speaking, the second movement was the slow one. So we're going to hear a little bit of that <clears throat> right now. The second movement to Haydn's thirty-first symphony.
1: And is this the is it adagio? That adagio.
2: Temple? Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> So this symphony is nicknamed the horn signal, and I am happy to explain why, but my point is is that horns are featured prominently. Most people outside of the world of music call them French horns, but people who play it never call it that. Uh, so just horns. There are a lot of horns in this. Here they are. So beautiful.
1: I love the elegance, you know? The first one is yeah. kind of like, yeah, it seems so noble, and then this seems so just kind of sweet and elegant. It is. And why did he call it Horn Signal? I mean, what's the significance besides the fact that there are a lot of horns?
2: Uh, well, the first movement, um, they play... Uh kind of a well, back in the day when you would get your mail, there'd be some dude riding on a horse with a little horn in his mouth and he would trumpet a little or whatever when your mail came. That's how you knew it was called a post horn for your post your post is coming. Uh and so the horns were playing a little post horn motive. So it's the horn signal, like it's just that's why it's mm, called horn cool. signal. Yeah. Cool. Super cool. From the post postal days. Yeah. Days in the post. Yep, yep. Yeah, so uh yeah, that's a little bit of the slow movement from, from Haydn. Well the
1: and this is um I know we don't do this often on the show, like comparing styles and tempos to to the wine itself, but sometimes there's some I I think for me that some resonance and like Verdejo when it's done well has a ton of energy, like the first movement. Mm-hmm. But there's also this um element of grace. And even when I've had it in a pet nat, you know, where they've, they're really fun or they, you know, are are done in an orange style where they have a bit of skin contact and they've got, you know, their tannins and kind of rough and tumble wow. seemingly. Verdejo is a grape that I I think having tasted the amount that I've tasted and where, you know, I've just had the great fortune to taste it, you know, in its environment with the right people that are doing the right things, in my opinion, the right things. Yeah. It's one of the most terroir laden, like grape of place, meaning you can taste the difference between places that are a kilometer away from each other, unlike most other grapes I've tasted. Really? And that's something that unfortunately most people don't get to experience because they have these commercial examples that right. are, you know, I. I th- this is I'm definitely shooting from the hip here, but I think um in order to be called a rueda for the most part, and this has changed a little bit over the years, but there was a time where you needed to produce like it was either I think it was thirty thousand hectoliters or three hundred thousand hectoliters. either way, that's a boat ton of wine, yeah um, and so you you have to be producing on a mass scale, yeah, and so obviously you're not going to be making natural wine or on yeast, right. like, uh, you know, indigenous yeast with all this quantity because who knows if it's going to go well. It's going right. to be a lot of money down the tubes if it doesn't. Right. Um, you have to have hands-on. Yeah. You know, you can't be just letting that go. Um, well, actually, you can because it's all done. A lot of it's done by computer now in these big facilities. Sure. Um, but they're what, what makes a Verdejo able to be Reflective of terroir and refre- reflective of place is if it is done with this hands hands on but yet hands off approach with mm-hmm. like as little makeup to no makeup as possible, meaning low to no sulfur. Um, and it's it's a joy to behold when you can sip it. This is from a producer called. We usually don't talk about producers on the show unless we really it depends. Yeah, unless we really like them because we we don't want to poo poo. You know, we've tasted some wines that are really fun, but they kind of, they might lack some soul or they might this and that. And we just won't put them. We will, of course, talk about the region of the grape. This is from a dear friend of mine, um, which doesn't make it good or bad. It just happens to be (laughs) effing delicious. Uh, This is Esmeralda Garcia's uh, Vajuste from 2016.
2: Spell the Vajuste part.
1: Uh, V-A-Y-U-S-T-E. And it's only available in Minneapolis, so come get some.
2: <laughs> Should I fill you up before we talk oh, about movement man. three I I mean, four? I almost feel bad, but it's so delicious. All I, I want you to fill it to the brim, to be honest. <laughs> I want to guzzle it. It
1: would fit, and we are drinking right now out of, once in a while we drink out of tumblers. You know, we kind of change things up on scores and pours. Oh. I have these cute little natural wine glasses that are like, meaning what they serve in a lot of natural wine taverns around the world. Like they're smaller and um, they're just a little bit more conducive to having a good time and not breaking as much Mm -hmm. expensive glassware when you're indulging in natural wine. These are like some pretty big opulent glasses. So if I were to fill it to the brim, it would be probably a bottle and a half's
2: worth. Just saying. (laughs) Movement 3 ER. Movement 3. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Movement 3. Oftentimes is something called a minuet and trio. Now, we have recorded an episode where we've talked about minuets versus a waltz, so we're not going to get too much into that right now. Just know that minuet was an incredibly popular type of dance back in the classical era, especially with royalty, and so it was super common for there to be minuets within symphonies, almost always the third movement. Minuet also, in and of itself, uh, being the third part of a four-part symphony, uh, within the minuet, also has two parts and is kind of in a, what we would call a ternary form, where you hear A, you hear one part, then you hear this new part, then you go back and hear the other part again.
1: Would that be like A, B, A? A, B, A. Ternary. Cool.
2: Yeah. So uh, we're not going to probably hear that much of it, but just know that a minuet is is in some kind of um, triple time, three or maybe six. And uh, that was for the dancing. So here's the third movement. And I love this movement. And when you say love.
1: three and six, you mean one, two, three, four,
2: five, six. One, mm-hmm. two, three, or four, five, six. One, or. two, three, one, two, three, or whatever. Whatever the tempo is. is like such it's such a like middle school safe dance you know what I mean like this yeah you're just like you're like touching palms and shit (laughs) it's ridiculous it's completely ridiculous but it you can hear I think pomp in here Mm -hmm. you know you can hear it's just it's very refined and proper you know Nothing's offensive. There's not, you know, tons of chromaticism or dissonance, notes that clash. You know what I mean? There's like...
1: Gosh, welcome Verdejo. Yes. (laughs) little pomp, refined, Mm -hmm. not a lot of dissonance.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it just is what it is.
1: This wasn't meant to be what makes a symphony a symphony, what makes a Verdejo a Verdejo... it it was meant to have overlap because we were defining them but it wasn't meant to see if they linked up in any way right and but I'm kind of I'm kind of excited that they do at least for now
2: Sorry, because I know. Can you just run that by me one more time, what that has to do with Verdejo?
1: So Rueda is a region within okay. Spain. Okay, okay. Like, it's the
2: region. Okay, yep. yeah. Now I remember that. Okay. Just like,
1: you know, Rioja or Penedes mm-hmm. or Valencia. It's a region, a demarcated region. A demarcated region. Okay. Yes. That's So it has to be within these borders. Yeah. It needs to be made... Just, we talked, we did an episode where we talked about Chinon and the rule book. Yep. There's a rule book for Rueda as well. Okay. So, for the region. Correct. In order to call your wine Rueda, it needs to be of a certain. That's not Rueda. Correct. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, This person has opted out of the denomination of origin because A, she doesn't make enough wine. Okay. But B, now that they've said, hey, you know, do you want to come back? Because now we think you're great. Um, mm-hmm. She's like, I don't have enough wine to sell anyway. So why would I want to go pay to be part of, you usually have to pay mm-hmm. for your labels and um, and also play by their rules, etc. And she, you know, I don't know um, offhand if the rule book says you can make the wine in clay and you cannot use any sulfur, et cetera. But my guess is you you can't make it in clay. Okay. I mean, okay. yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, people, but.
2: Sure, sure. Okay. So, but, but, Rueda is made with Verdejo. It's just, you got to be a part of the thing. You got to be a part of the club to call it that. And if you don't want to be a part of the club, or if you're making something better or different, then you just do your own Verdejo, and it's not Rueda.
1: Uh, Truth, the only... The only little, like, caveat or little, like, just section off is that if you're going to, if you look at the back of Rueda can also be, there can also be other grape varietals in it. So, let's, oh, say, rueda. Let, let's say you look at the back of the label and it says Rueda Verdejo. I think it needs to be 85% Verdejo. Okay. The rest could be Sauvignon Blanc. It could be other grapes. Yep. You can have uh, Viuda as another grape that's known throughout Spain. You can viuda? Have that Viuda, V-I-U-R-A. So oh. then there's Rueda Blanco, and okay. that's a blend of those grapes in certain percentages in order to call it Rueda Blanco. There is also Rueda Rosado, that that is based off of, I think, Tempranillo, and you can have a couple other grapes in there. And then there's, there is also Rueda Tinto. It's very rare to have a red Rueda wine, but you can, and that is depending on what grape varietals percentages the book says then that's how you know what's in it. But the main shining star of Rueda, their calling card, is Verdejo.
2: Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. So, can you give me a sense for how much different it would taste if we were tasting a commercial wine right now?
1: Yeah, it would taste like it would taste like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Like you literally wouldn't know the difference unless you had tasted a hundred Kiwi Sauvignon Blancs and a hundred commercial Verdejos. You'd start to you'd start to you know, Kiwi Sauvignon Blancs are a little riper, like they, they're they a little bit more tropical. And Spanish commercial verdejo or, or rueda is like the same, kind of the same tropical scheme, but leaner. So think of like a, a mango that's not ripe versus a mango that's really ripe. Yeah, A lot of the Spanish verdejo has a lot of that in the nose that you can smell these tropical esters that come off of, you know, if, if you have Sauvignon Blanc in there and then, but to boot, if you're using Sauvignon Blanc yeast, but it's, it's definitely in like a tighter package. A lot of times, I mean, Verdejo is, is acidic, but it's really high in alcohol too. It can get high in alcohol. And when you're having these 12% alcohol screaming acid wines, a lot of times they're acidified, you know, so you can taste like. what They're what? They're acidified. They add so acid? They've, they've added like a, a citric acid. Yep. Or tartaric oh acid for you, really? to like, yep. And it's like they taste like, like you just know it's if you if you were to put like um, baking soda in water, it's like super alkaline, and you know that. Just you don't even have to. Yeah, it's it just tastes like fake. Yeah, like pop rocks kind of. And not to say I'm, and I don't want to poo poo Rueda, right? Like yeah, I don't know, I don't want to be sniped by the do of, Rio, right. of Rueda, but um they can taste you know great and balanced and that whole thing but they can mm-hmm. also taste over the top acid where you're like it stands out so much that you wonder it's like when you see pardon me it's the first thing that came to my mind but when you see a woman with a boob job and you're like there's no way those are real it, it doesn't mean that you doesn't mean that they're pretty or not pretty there's just all you're saying is there's no way those can be real when you taste acidified wine especially from a region that you know what it tastes like when it's not acidified, it all of a sudden sticks out like a sore thumb. And the minute you notice that for the first time, and I've worked in a winery that I had to add acid to wines, you know right away, you're like, that's what that tastes like. That's what it tastes like when it's integrated, even though it's never really integrated. And so when you taste verdejos that are acidified, it's like there's no way that that can be real. Like, people can love it yeah. or they can hate it. Yeah. It doesn't change the fact that it doesn't
2: taste like yeah. it belongs there, you know? Uh, the thing that really just gets me is, like, I mean, I, I can see both sides of it, of course, but it's like, why wouldn't they say, instead of, here, add all this shit to your wine so that it tastes like this, as opposed to, don't add any shit to your wine,
1: <laughs> you well, know, but I, get, well, here, it. I well, get it. And how many times do you, when you go out, like, so Emily and I love a producer called Bent Paddle, mm. brewery here in, in Duluth, in Minnesota. But when you want a Bent Paddle, it's like you want a Bent Paddle because you're in the mood for that flavor, right? And it's different with beer. But with wine, it's really similar. I don't know how many times I get people coming into the wine shop I work at and they're like, do you have a Pinot Noir? You're like, what, what about Pinot Noir do you want? Because yeah. that could be. A Thousand Shades, yet this person has it in their mind that they like Pinot Noir. Is it because it's light? Is it because it's heavy? What? So I think with Verdejo, they knew they would triumph if they had this, like, success story type of palette that yeah. people inevitably... I mean, my sister, she loves New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and she it's light. It's got this passion-fruity, tropical notion about it. And so when you just want your comfort thing you just want your comfort thing yeah. and so that's when you the more yeah. stuff you're adding into wine the more you're making it taste like the recipe yeah uniform yeah
2: i know but still it's still just like it defeats the purpose but also it, it, it makes doesn't. the
1: purpose for yeah. other other folks
2: yeah all right well i'll cheers that <laughs> <laughs> or cheers to not doing yeah, that <laughs> exactly <laughs> so last movement last movement fast movement And, you know, the finale usually Mm -hmm. is fast. Again, there's always exceptions to the rule. But um, there are all kinds of rules in symphonies also about form. You know, um, when we talk about form in music, I like to describe it as a roadmap. Like before it, when this piece starts to the time it ends, how do you get from the beginning to the end? And what do you do with melody? And what do you do with key and all of that? Matters, and it matters in a symphony too. So all the keys of the movements are related to each other in some way, shape, or form. Unless you're Gustav Mahler, the symphony is going to end <laughs> in the same key it started in. That's normal. So th- those are just some, some other rules scattered atop, okay. you know, the, the symphony. Uh, But, yeah, here's a little bit of that last movement. It's a fast one, and, you know, we're wrapping everything up, so there's usually a little bit more energy. Here we go. Fourth movement of Haydn's 31st symphony in D. ¶¶ One of the cool things about the last movement of this particular symphony is that it's something called a theme and variations, and that's something else that we're going to tackle in an episode of Scores and Fours. Uh But it's neat that that's what's going on here.
1: In there. Thank yep. you. So this is the second. I do that do that all day.
2: Uh, the end, the very 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 end of the symphony brings back a little of the first movement. So you can be like, oh, yeah, we're post-horning. We're talking about horn, horns and stuff. So it's a fun little little symphony. But, but just yeah, this to, is going to just to piggyback off what
1: she was saying, the theme and variation, like presenting of a melody, and then you notice, you know, however many bars later, it's like a, the melody is the same, but in a variation of it. Yeah, it's it's like
2: the same but different. There's the, uh, you know, a little bit of the last movement of Haydn's 31st Symphony. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Loved it. So,
1: what do you think about Verdejo? I mean... We've tasted uh, quite a few, uh, both conventional and more natural producers over mm-hmm. our, our last few months of scores and pours, I and, feel car- like- and karaoke nights,
2: <laughs> but that's a sign. That's a different story. Uh, I feel like... I feel like I would know her wine for the rest of my life. Like, it tastes like... It reminds me of White Label, which is one that we had months ago now. I can just taste it, you know what I mean? It smells like it. I love it. I think it's certainly one of my favorite grape varietals, only because I've loved them all so much, except for the shitty commercial ones were gross, but... It's so delicious. It's such a delicious grape.
1: <laughs> was has there been any um, conventional ones that we've that you or we have liked? Do you don't remember?
2: Recall. There I was
1: don't... one that we thought was like really passable. We were like, wow, that was that would be really delicious with like fish. You know, if you were yeah. in the region or if you were on the coast and someone yeah. gave you, a, you know, a glass of that, you wouldn't complain. You know, we just. Well, there's a lot of
2: stuff I wouldn't complain about if I were given a glass for free, but uh, but yeah, I I vaguely remember that one. I don't remember that that was a commercial wine, but uh, I do remember it. But man, it's it's to me this just hits all my all the things I want, you know, in terms of it's ripeness, aka sweetness. If you're a noob. Or (laughs) be like, this is too sweet. No, it's ripe. Um, Nice. So it's not too ripe, but it's almost, you know, like it's bordering on that to me, like a Mm -hmm. bruised kind of thing, which I love.
1: And that's very, and I like that you said that because that's really quintessential verdejo. like that whole oxidative, not oxidative, like sherry oxidative, but like it's the oxidation factor where it has those esters of bruised fruit is very common, especially with some verdejos with age.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just like Chenin Blancs with age, or even Sake. You know, you've got all these like notes of figs, but it's bruised fig and different <laughs> different things. So interesting. Yeah. I love it. Well, thanks for bringing some Haydn to the fore.
2: Yep. Anytime. I love Haydn. He's one of my one of my fellas. You know, I just I love him. To scores and pours. I'm empty. See how I do that? <laughs> the Scores and Pores.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 15 of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pores edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan, and I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Inc. Verdejo, 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 Verdejo,
2: Verdejo,
0: Verdejo, 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 Verdejo,
1: very day
0: very day 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 day